Welcome to the Mental Disorder Podcast. My guest today is Caleb Ontiveros. Caleb is a computer programmer with a background in philosophy. He is the founder of Stoa, an app that combines the ancient philosophy of Stoicism with mindfulness and meditation. He writes the Stoa Letter, co-hosts the podcast Stoa Conversations, and is the editor of the Classical Futurist Substack. Caleb, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on. Your background is very interesting because you go from studying philosophy to the tech world and then sort of a combination of the two. Um, but I want to start by asking you what got you interested in philosophy and then Stoicism in particular, because most people who study philosophy, they might kind of go past the Stoics, but there's actually not that many people who stop there. I'll start in the beginning. So I got interested in philosophy because I wanted to know whether God existed or not. So I was very excited about these sort of religious debates when I was in high school and stumbled across philosophy that way. Because, of course, uh, that's just such a essential philosophical matter, really. And I was interested in that question because whether or not God exists plays an important role in how one should live one's life. You know, I grew up as a Christian, and of course, Christianity is a philosophy of life in the sense that it tells you what the good life is and how to get it. And Stoicism is more or less the same in that sense. It's also a philosophy of life without being a religion. And as far as Stoicism goes, I studied philosophy in undergrad, went to grad, graduate school for a bit. And it is interesting that you bring up the issue of you know who's interested in Stoicism. There's a growing resurgence of academics who are interested in the Stoics, but throughout my you know academic philosophical career, I did not read that much of the Stoics. When I was an undergrad, the ancient philosophy class had a single day essentially on Stoicism, and it didn't stick out to me then when I when I encountered it. It wasn't until later uh, that I saw sort of like the value of Stoicism as a practical philosophy uh, of life. So, uh, and that, that came through actually reading Nassim Taleb and his book, Anti-Fragile. He cites Seneca, a famous Roman philosopher, statesman, and playwright. Um, and from there, I read a little bit of Seneca, read some of Marcus Aurelius, the Stoic Roman emperor, and it was clear to me that Stoicism was something that uh, was of a lot of value. Well, for people who are unfamiliar with Stoicism, can you give sort of a brief outline of, you know, who the Stoics were and what they believe? From my understanding of Stoicism, when most people talk about it, like casually, they just think that's just, oh, just be tough, right? Being Stoic just means like, you know, don't talk about your problem, just kind of grin and bear it. And, um, but obviously the tradition is, you know, different than that. It's richer than that. So just can you give a, a brief sort of definition? Yeah. So Stoicism is a Greco-Roman philosophy. Uh, it is a philosophy of life. So it's an account of what a good life is and how to achieve it to the best of one's ability. And they were laser focused on sort of like the life of virtue or another phrase they might use as living in accord with nature. And what I think what that means is that for them, the virtue was necessary and sufficient for a good life. So long as you have a good character, um, 
you are living well. Good decisions and judgments are fundamentally what matters. That is what's up to us. And it's by controlling our judgments and making excellent decisions that we shape who we are. Um, so, and of course they offered techniques and practices for doing that. And in terms of who they were, there's a wide, wide range of people from the Stoic emperor, uh, Marcus Aurelius and to say Epictetus, a teacher of Stoicism who was initially a slave. His name literally means acquired. Uh, so those are some of the, the Roman Stoics and of course Seneca, who I mentioned already. So the, the school emerged in Greece, got transported into Rome, and it has this real practical focus in addition to some of these, you know, more theoretical ideas about what virtue is, a particular philosophy of mind, Stoic psychology. But ultimately, it's geared on uh, action. Mm. And at the, at the time, did these people consciously identify as being part of a group called the Stoics, or was that later placed upon them? Oh yeah. So the term stoicism comes from the word stoa, which uh, essentially just means ports. It's where the stoics uh, would meet and they, over time that term caught on. But by the time you get to the Roman stoics, they would consciously identify as stoics. There's really a competitive uh, environment of philosophical schools in Greece to Rome competing over uh, students or competing over cultural influence. And so by, by you get to the point where you have a school that's established. There's a fellow named Zeno. He founds it. He's the head of the school. And then he has followers, Cleanthes, second head of the school, Chrysippus. And these people are, you know, form a proper lineage. They're identified as Stoics. Where you look back on other philosophical schools, like say existentialism, you know, carving out exactly who an existentialist is, is say less straightforward than looking at, you know, who the Stoics were. Now, in terms of competition, right, in ancient Greece and Rome for sort of, you know, philosophy students, the main groups are, you've got the Stoics, you've got the Epicureans, um, who else are the sort of major players on the scene at that time? We'd have uh, Aristotelians or our Peripatetics followers of Aristotle. There's uh, another school called the Cynics, which heavily influenced the Stoics, but they were a rival school or really they're closer to a collection of philosophers than uh, an established school. Um, in addition to skeptics, uh, different forms of skeptics, um, so, all, and uh, these philosophical schools would differ to a greater or larger degree. So if you take the Epicureans, in a sense, the Epicureans would be the classical Stoic rivals because they held that pleasure was the ultimate good. Whereas the Stoics held that uh, pleasure is really something that's indifferent. It's preferable. But in and of itself, it's not uh, fundamentally good. So that's the sort of thing that they might argue over. Um, although, at the same time, these schools would emphasize uh, things like virtue, different views of what nature was, to the extent that many modern 
um, groups don't. So Nassim Taleb doesn't think there's a substantial difference in practice between the Epicureans and the Stoics, uh, which is debatable. But that's at least it's at least true insofar as both of them are focused on virtue in a way that many modern people who have some, you know, they might be more nihilistic and they might not have an account of values uh don't or if they do have an account of values it's going to be probably closer to something that is utilitarian or be more rules-based so you use the term earlier life philosophy which i think is an interesting term right because there's always a question of what's between sort of philosophy and religion right and i think to, to some degree maybe in the west uh we're used to religion because of monotheism being this very kind of strong, all encompassing belief system. Whereas, you know, more in the East, it's like, is Taoism a religion or is it a life philosophy? Is Buddhism a religion or life philosophy? It's not necessarily one or the other. It's sort of like in the middle, right? But it's interesting, right? That the people at that time, they believed, or I don't know if they believed consciously, but they, they seem to understand that, in order to have a good account of what you should do, you have to have a good account of nature, you have to have a good account of the mind, right? And so they had all these different debates around all of these subjects. And it's not, you know, quite like today where everything seems more, you know, you can sort of pick and choose. But there was sort of an acknowledgement that like, your view of what the most important, you know, good in life was should then affect your views on action, and the mind and all these things are sort of um, related. Um, is, is that sort of a fair reading of, you know, how they would have viewed these disagreements? Yeah, I think they, they all had different views on, say, different domains of the domains of physics, which we could, you know, broadly understand as nature, maybe more empirical issues, uh, the domain of logic, uh, and then, of course, ethics as well. And all, all of these schools would be coming up with comprehensive accounts of each of these. And so you get particular views of nature from the Epicureans. They think things are atomized, uh, it's particles bouncing around in a void, uh, and so on. Whereas the Stoics see uh, nature as ordered, as having a providential aspect. And those, at the very least, influence how they see the other fields of logic and ethics. So things are certainly tightly, tightly bound. Uh, in that way, and probably that would have been clearer to many of the ancient practitioners of philosophy. Whereas, arguably today, those things you know still should influence what one believes about the world, right? One's account of nature should influence uh, what you think the good life is. That seems correct, but perhaps the con connections are going to be less clear. Yeah, like I think a lot of people they wouldn't base their view of physics necessarily on as relates to their view about ethics, right? Although in, in some sense, you do see a, a lineup, right? So you see sort of, I don't know, almost more empiricist people who are everything is scientific, and they tend to have a more utilitarian kind of ethic and, and more rationalist. I don't mean like the, the term of the way people use it now, where rationalist means what empiricism meant yesterday, but rationalist in the sense of everything is sort of, you know, providentially decided and, and created and it's ordered and you have to have very Right, everything's about rules, basically. Um, so it, yeah, it's interesting how those kinds of you know uh, things stack up. Now, Stoics believed that virtue was the most important you know sort of thing in life, 
as the almost animating force of what you should aspire to in life. What is or what was the basis of their belief that virtue should trump pleasure or should trump, I don't know, I guess a state of just sort of tranquility where you don't really try too hard? What, what brought them to virtue? One of the key arguments for that is just that virtue is always beneficial. So if you think of um, the arrival account that holds that, uh, say, pleasures, not to beat on the Epicureans too much, but pleasure is what matters. You can think about particular cases in which pleasure arguably is not beneficial. The pleasure of the sadist, uh, like, is that something that is intrinsically good or not? My sense is that it's not valuable at all. You know, you can have thought experiments where, you know, if you're, you know, utilitarians often like to think uh, in this way, you know, you have one world with these attributes versus some other world with these other attributes. You know, imagine you have this world as opposed to one other world where uh, some terrible person has slightly more pleasure. Is that the better world? Probably not. Um, and I think this is likely true for uh, essentially all sort of uh, outcome oriented goods one might posit as the final good whereas virtue you know virtue is acting well it's and ultimately for the stoics it's going to be knowledge knowing the good and knowing how to apply it and that is always beneficial and that's the sort of thing that allows one to say yes uh, sometimes pleasurable is or sometimes I should say pleasure is preferable, but other times it's not valuable at all. Right. And did they, did they ever consider that if you define virtue as also including knowledge, it becomes harder to make this kind of argument, but did they ever, did anyone ever, you know, object and say, well, many people act, you know, think they're acting virtuously. Uh, they act with virtue and doing something, but the, the action they're taking actually ends up, you know, being negative. So, for example, if you have uh, two armies at war, they might both be acting virtuously in terms of defending their homeland, defending their country. But the end result of them both acting as virtuously as possible is they all end up dead. Versus if they had both been a bit more utilitarian about it and kind of said, look, this is kind of dishonorable, but maybe we can just sort of agree to move some stuff around. And maybe everyone would have been better off? Were those kinds of arguments ever sort of levied? Or is that a misunderstanding of what they meant by virtue? I think you could have the view that the right thing to do, this utilitarian view, is going to be just essentially dominated by the outcomes. Um, and say, you know, I, out of no knowledge of my own, it just so happens that if I turn on this light, that's going to, in my room, that's going to result in some terrible disaster. Or if I do some apparently good thing, that's going to uh, result in some other terrible disaster. These sorts of things, I think the Stoics would be fine with saying, if that's, you know, given all that I knew, if I was uh, behaving appropriately in my role, turning on my lights, a pretty normal thing to do. I didn't, you know, wasn't negligent in for whatever reason knowing that that should have caused a disaster. That sort of thing is fine because if we have an ethics, it needs to be sort of action relevant. And I think so sometimes these more utilitarian accounts 
are going to become divorced from action if you are expecting the right action to depend on you know the sorts of facts that no one can possibly know so so there's one thing to say to say there but there's an, another thing to say might be that so if you take someone who uh, a famous stoic from the past a fellow named cato the younger he was a, uh, an opponent of caesar and was famously principled and that, that sort of comes into this issue of you know if you're in politics to what extent should you dirty your hands what to what extent should you make compromises with potential tyrants and i think uh sort of a, a perennial debate is what was cato acting with virtue when he refused to compromise or was he just being pig-headed was he being stubborn was he not acting with the flexibility that virtue requires and perhaps that that does bring out that there's going to be some amount of complexity in determining what the right thing to do is and there are some of these questions around uh especially uh larger social questions uh, that there's going to be some amount of uncertainty over what the virtuous act is but i don't know if that that's just going to show that uh, you can have t- two people sort of almost in like a prisoner's dilemma type style where they do the virtuous thing and that results in the worst world the the political example is quite interesting right and if you you can observe politics and it seems sort of obvious which path most politicians take um although every once in a while there is one politician who really sticks to their guns and i don't i wouldn't say often they're rewarded but i feel like when they are, do succeed everybody is more happy about that person succeeding i also think of a case like i know you know batman is actually a good example right so batman has this rule where he doesn't kill anybody uh so he lives in a city that's you know overrun with criminals many of whom have like extremely dangerous superpowers and technologies and and things uh and yet he he refuses to kill he will only place criminals in the prison or the asylum which they almost always escape from and many batman comics and and movies and things are about this where people are saying like batman why don't you just kill this person uh instead of having to constantly rearrest them after they've killed other people and he always says no like i would never stoop to their level and I guess I guess people can have an honest right disagreement about which is the virtuous thing to do in those kinds of situations, uh, and maybe we'll never have an answer. But it's yeah, it's it seems like a an open question versus a lot of other situations, a lot of other cases we wouldn't really have a disagreement about. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Let's turn a bit to stoicism and mental health. First of all, can you explain sort of the Stoic view of emotions and how emotions are integrated into their philosophy? Yeah, yeah. So I think one of the central things for the Stoics is that emotions are downstream of our judgments. And one way to think about that is you have the sort of pain that's involved in exercise. When you're exercising, that pain is generally going to be manageable. It's going to be experienced differently than it would be if you know, sort of ran. You were walking around the grocery store and randomly felt the exact 
same pain. And that's because of the judgments that are associated with the situation. And likewise, there are many cases we observe of people experiencing the same negative adverse events. They respond differently. What's the best explanation for that? They have different interpretations of those events, perhaps because of their uh, character, their past experiences, uh, whatever it is. So one of the that's one of the key moves the Sto- Stoics have about emotion. They have this sort of cognitive view of emotions. The founder of rational motive behavioral therapy, uh, Albert Ellis, has a nice line where many I think therapists or many patients would just come in to his office and sit down and explain their problems, and at the end they might insist, you know, that's just that's just how I feel. That's just how I feel. Things are this, they're terrible. And that's just how I feel. And he would like to point out, no, but it's also how you think. And that is, I think, one of the the crucial stoic moves uh, that is made is that how you think matters. You know, Marcus Aurelius has a line, consider that everything is opinion and opinion is in your power. Take away when you choose your opinion. And like a mariner who has doubled the promontory, you'll find calm, everything stable and a waveless bay. Um, and given that we have that kind of power over our, our opinion, that doesn't mean we can snap our fingers and fail to experience emotional pain. But given that we have that power, we can improve our judgments, see things as they are, and reduce uh, negative emotions by seeing things uh, by seeing reality more clearly. One part of Stoic philosophy tends to be this idea that there are things outside of my control and in nature, the universe, destiny, the actions of others, but there are certain things within my control, right? So my most importantly, my actions, um, my feelings, my thoughts. How much agency do the Stoics give to people to control their own thoughts or their own emotions is it is it viewed as you have a lot of control over your own thinking over your own feeling or is it viewed more like those things are also sort of part of nature out of your control but you have a, an ability to act differently based on uh, your training in essence yeah yeah i think if we go a little bit more in, into detail and the stoic sci- picture of psychology might be useful so um one way to think of it is that it has four there's sort of four steps to uh how we experience the world one is we receive some initial impression just some initial appearance it appears to me there's a car in front of me it appears to me that someone rudely bumped into me in the subway whatever it is so we have impression and then the next step would be reflection we bring to bear our past judgments past experiences to that impression and then the third step would be assent. Do I agree that there is a car in front of me? Do I agree whether someone rudely bumped into me in the subway? And then after that agreement, the fourth step would be impulse. That's sort of the beginning of action. So oh, if there's a car in front of me, that might not prompt uh, any action. If someone bumped into me in the subway route, and I believe it truly was rudely, perhaps you know, that's going to prompt me to begin to move my body, turn around, whatever it is. Um, and that uh impressions the impressions we receive are not directly up to us right they are uh a matter of what you know the world decides to throw our way but 
reflection, assent, and uh, determine an impulse. And that, in that sense, impulse might be indirectly up to us. And reflection and assent are up to us in the sense that our past judgments, past assents have formed uh, what we bring to bear on every impression. Um, if I uh, have past experience, if I have some some belief that you know, if people bumping into you in the subway is normal, then I'm going to be less likely to believe that perhaps someone bumping into me was rude. Uh, this sort of thing, and then whether we disagree or not with a given impression, that also is up to us. So in that sense, some of the ancient Stoics, perhaps especially a fellow named Epictetus, thought we had an exceptional amount of agency over our our world and some it's, it's a little bit of a paradox because in some sense he believed that this is all that is up to us is this uh internal rational aspect of ourselves but we do have a significant amount of control over it uh, all these other downstream things whether it's health reputation wealth pleasure we and influence those, but ultimately they're not up to us. The only things that are up to us are our ability to reflect on impressions and assent to them or not. Um, so th there's a, some you can and then you can just, I think there's some debate over just how much agency that is going to amount to. Of course, the fact that you have all these past judgments that, that you're always bringing, whoever you are, to bear on the impressions you're judging is going to constrict what you assent to or not it's even going to influence how you interpret the impression um and the stoics would also be happy to say that many initial feelings one experiences are not up to you at all and many habits we build uh build up or either from society or from nature are going to occur so quickly that they're going to be exceptionally difficult to reprogram, as it were. Um, so all in all, there's some amount of room about how much agency people, a Stoic might think one has, but I think on, on the margin, they're going to be much more uh, on the you know pro-agency side. I think people can, in fact, change how they experience the world. They can at the very least start moving and in the right direction once they have corrected, you know, corrected their errors. Yeah. It sounds a bit based on what you're saying here and some of the other stuff I've read from you, uh, that part of the idea here is to correctly assign the type of thinking you're doing to the right category. So, uh, so you and your co-host Michael recently did a podcast for, um, stoic conversations about, um, Daniel Kahneman's book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, and its connection to Stoicism. And what I think is interesting about that idea is in Thinking Fast and Slow, you've got System 1 and System 2 thinking. System 1 is sort of impulsive, heuristic, really fast, and System 2 is more calm, deliberated. And what I almost get the sense of is Stoicism, a lot of it is about trying to bring the things that you would normally evaluate too quickly, too heuristically over into the system two camp where you can think about them more rationally, more calmly. And at the same time, there are some things that you don't want to over deliberate. There are some things where you actually want to trust your gut. And you obviously through cultivating a practice, you, you develop your, your gut, your intuition, 
And so there are some things that you actually don't want to deliberate too much on that you want to act, you know, more quickly on. Uh, something like that kind of uh, a decent, not perfect, but decent fit uh, to Kahneman's theory. Yeah, I think it's a, a good fit. I think if you, one way to think about Kahneman's theory is that um, system one and system two are different ways of generating impressions that we decide to assent to or not. So, and then the question is, so do you think those impressions were generated generated reliably or not? And that's just going to depend on the field. So one's intuitions, uh, or rather they say system one beliefs about the stock market for most people are likely going to be uh, pretty unreliable. But perhaps if they're in a physical field where you get quick feedback, uh, you know, whether it's climbing, uh, soccer, what have you, that is going to be the kind of case where you can, uh, you don't need to over-deliberate. And indeed, I think many uh, athletic coaches often act, advise people to, you know, not don't, don't self-interfere with your deliberative process. You don't need to over-analyze, especially when you're in the thick of performing. Maybe when you stand outside yourself, think about what can be tweaked, uh, then, then you can you know, become as analytical as, as you like, but often much of our learning is not going to be done in, 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 in system two. So I, I think that's, that's, uh, that was a fun episode. Uh, and there's certainly some amount of imp, uh, impact, uh, or there's certainly some amount of connection. I would be, I think some might be tempted to say what stoicism is telling you to do is generate more impressions from system two. And there's, uh, I would be wary of that being the single takeaway just because, you know, as you, as you suggest, there's going to, there are different styles of thinking, different styles of learning that are uh, suitable for different activities. Yeah. And I also think for many things, your goal and whatever you're doing should eventually be to move the system two thinking back to system one in some sense. So if you are, you know, if you are a stock trader, um, you eventually get so good at it that you can quickly identify, you know, trends and whether to buy or sell. And it's not that you never go back and deliberate more, but that should be, you know, over time you improve these things. Now, another sort of through line here to psychology is the cognitive behavioral therapy angle. And so um, earlier you were talking about, I think, Albert Ellis's therapy, which I think is that influences cognitive behavioral therapy, but many of the things you talk about in terms of, you know, um, adjusting perceptions, trying not to catastrophize, trying to change your thinking, to change your emotions and actions and vice versa, the idea they're all interconnected. This is a lot of what they teach in cognitive behavioral therapy. Is there any sort of explicit connection to, you know, stoicism and cognitive behavioral therapy, or is it just people picking up on, these good ideas and you know um it's it's one of those things that's baked into reality that the chain is obvious well the historical connection is that i think you could think of albert ellis as one of the maybe like in the first uh, first wave cognitive behavioral therapists perhaps um and he was ex explicitly influenced by the stoics especially epictetus and epictetus's lines about how it's not things in themselves that harm you, but our perception of them. Um, and that shows up in his philosophy, uh, as well as his interactions with Aaron Beck, 
um, when they are just focused on this. Is, of course, you have the view of emotion that we spoke to earlier, but what's next after that view? Well, now you want to target negative thought patterns, cognitive distortions that produce these judgments that cause suffering. And many of them, whether it's unrealistic expectations, different ways of catastrophizing are going to be uh, lined up very nicely with what the Stoics uh, said. Another connection or technique from the Stoics is premeditatio malorum or negative visualization, which amounts to thinking of ways things could go wrong before they in fact do. And doing that in a systematic way, which maps on to exposure therapy, which my sense is one of the most uh, effective interventions that uh, many modern day therapists will use, um, both in CBT and outside. Uh, And that both in terms of like the physical practice, you know, expose yourself to what you are uh, afraid of, what you fear irrationally in a systematic way. And also that mental preparation, thinking through what could in fact go wrong. Imagine it did go wrong. Would that impact my happiness is I think a, a clear connection, but I think also brings out what is different about stoicism from cognitive behavioral therapy where on one hand say premeditatio malorum that's good for planning you can prepare for when things go wrong it's good for being psychologically prepared if things go wrong perhaps it won't impact you as much but the fundamental reason the stoics advise doing that is to see that if things went wrong that wouldn't harm you and they have this picture of value that you know virtue is happiness right what we chatted about in the beginning, all that fundamentally matters is you making excellent decisions and judgments. Uh, that's you, that in the end, that's all you have control over after all. Whereas I think many cognitive behavioral therapists, they're not going to add that additional picture of value because, uh, that's going to be m- much more contingent on the, you know, the patient's beliefs about, about what's good or not. Do you think there is within something like cognitive behavioral therapy? an implicit set of values? Well, I think humans are valuing creatures for it. So in nearly any activity, there's going to be some kind of implicit value at the very least. And I think that there are values and they're probably going to be pretty different across different therapists and patients, but they likely will map onto something like living in accordance with what the patient takes to be some of their fundamental projects, uh, their fundamental values, of course, and then also maybe realizing some shared values we all have, like reducing the uh, negative experiences that might be occurring due to uh, whatever uh, mental disorder or whatever reason the patient showed up to the therapist's couch in the first place. Yeah, my sense is that the implicit value, generally speaking, is more utilitarian, sort of uh, hedonic kind of kind of focus. Not not necessarily pleasure, but just trying to reduce suffering is the ultimate sort of value, and the you know, maybe, maybe ensconced within that a bit is 
a view of patients or people who are, you know, practicing therapy as, um, as basically utility maximizers who through unfortunate means, whether it's their life experience or something's gone wrong in their, their, their head, but they have a hard time, you know, maximizing utility in, in ways that, um, uh, work or that make sense or that don't lead to other problems. So you might imagine somebody who's, you know, sexually compulsive. So they're, you know, they're going out having sex with people that's bringing them joy or pleasure, but then they feel bad about that or it causes other problems. And so the balance isn't quite right. Um, I think, I think if, if you had a sex addict, um, who, who walk into a therapist and said, I've, I've been having sex with lots of people, but I feel fine. I feel great. There's nothing wrong with me. I don't think a therapist would say, well, that's not virtuous, right? You're not living the, the type of life you should be living. They would just say like, okay, you're fine. Right. Um, and that I guess reflects part of the, the difference in implicit philosophy, which is, I guess the fact that it is actually a medical in some sense thing, right? It's supposed to be psychiatric medical. You're trying to heal people versus the, the stoic thing. It's not about healing you. It's about a broader philosophy of life. And yeah, so maybe that kind of is, is going on and explains some of the difference. Yeah, that's interesting. I, so I wouldn't think of the, uh, most of these relationships as utilitarian because there are other values that are, I think, at least implicitly shared that are going to trump maximizing utility, say like patient autonomy in particular, or client autonomy, where it's probably true that in some cases, the, uh, the therapist is going to uh, maybe push the patient in particular ways, but they're not going to do anything that would infringe on, or I shouldn't be so strong. Sometimes people do, in fact, infringe on their patient's autonomy, but I typically they will not uh, push uh, anything that sacrifices these, these norms around patient autonomy or say even perhaps other norms around confidentiality even if one could expect them to uh, promote in uh, expected utility terms a uh, better better life that's that's a good point i maybe so maybe it's some some combination in terms of values and things um and may, maybe the medical i mean i think medical ethics is its own kind of interesting question and whether it applies well to therapy and all this stuff but um, you know, one, one criticism that's sometimes levied of CBT that is maybe applicable to stoicism is that it's overly individualistic. And some people make a political connection to this and they say it's all, it's all neoliberalization, right? It used to be that there were these communities and then they got hollowed out. And now because of efficient markets, everybody's in different places doing different things. And, you know, it's wrong to tell people that, you actually are the only one who can control this because that's not true. Your congressman is the one who can control this, right? Uh, or if you and all your buddies got to, like you and your buddies could all be at home learning about stoicism, being resilient on your own, or you could all get together and have a barbecue. And that would actually be better for all of you than doing their own thing. Um, what do you make of that kind of argument about, I guess it's an argument really about self-help and self-improvement, but do you think that, you know, stoicism is individualistic or does it connect branch off into taking higher forms of action in a way, actually, that something like CBT might not? Stoicism certainly 
can be implemented in a way that is individualistic. And you can certainly find lines from the ancient Stoics or indeed modern Stoics that would support that, focusing on building resilience, meaning, not caring what is up to you. And that might include uh, political matters. And then is that right? Is that wrong? It's going to depend on the situation, I think. Uh, That being said, there are many resources in Stoicism to connect to much uh, a life outside of the patient. You know, Stoics think virtue is important. Part of being virtuous is playing your roles well. And they have a whole theory of role ethics about what that looks like that is involves recognizing the relationships you're in, uh, both of those that you have explicitly chosen, say, as a employee, um, but also those you are thrown into, whether that is your family or your city and living well is going to involve uh, not being individualistic uh, at all. Now, is that going to satisfy the person who has this kind of objection? Maybe, maybe not, but um, just because uh, I think often many Stoics still might be working at a smaller level. Um. But there is one other thing I wanted to say here, which is that I think if the most insightful thing from this objection is that becoming more resilient isn't always the most important thing. And that I think should be obvious. And there is a certain kind of self-help venture that can look quite close to a form of narcissism you know i think one of nassim taleb's quotes is you know meditation is a good way to be narcissistic without harming anyone or something like that uh i don't agree with that but there certainly is uh you know the the line there should be moderation in everything and there is a form of self-help that is not moderate and that is isolating and far too individualistic yeah well one one thing that struck me when I was doing research for this podcast is I never go on Reddit, but I went on r slash stoicism because I was just curious what people were posting. And a lot of it was people with real like issues like addiction, mental health issues. And they were, I was expecting, you know, philosophy discussions, but a lot of these were real people who are posting in these forums and they're basically asking for help. And they're saying like, I have an addiction problem. I have depression. I haven't spoken to anyone in a year and I'm afraid to go outside. Like, how do I, how do I get back into the social world? Um, And people were very supportive overall, but also honest, I think in a way you wouldn't necessarily find in other mental health communities, which I actually thought was uh, really cool. Um, But you know, it, it does seem that people are turning to stoicism uh, for not just life advice generally, but also sort of for mental health reasons. And, you know, I, I want to ask you because you have the stoa or you've created the stoa app, which I've used a couple of times uh, for, for listeners who are curious. Um, I recommend checking it out because every day there's a quote, there's some theory there's a a practice a commitment and action it's it's a really interesting thing i normally don't like meditation apps at all but 
Uh, and I actually skip most of the meditation parts, but just in terms of the idea of a, a daily kind of practice one could do with, you know, or centered around a philosophy that's, that's very practical. Um, I liked it a lot. And so my question is, you know, why do you think right now people are turning to stoicism for guidance about mental health issues is, you know, because again, from, from the public's perception, being stoic is almost a total reversal of that. It's not talking about your problems, not talking about your feelings. So, you know, what's the connection? What are people missing in terms of what's happened in the last couple of years? Yeah, yeah. I think the interest in stoicism has certainly grown. And I think there are a wide range of reasons for this. But I think some of the central ones are that um, there's sort of a, a sister movement around mindfulness, different Western forms of Buddhism that I think some people recognize is valuable, but it doesn't exactly speak to them. Maybe it's not as Western or rational as they would like. Uh, whereas Stoicism does have much more of a focus on rational thought, you know, thinking through your problems, how you respond to them, identifying cognitive distortions and so on. And that is something that uh, many people enjoy doing. And indeed, when I, when I stumbled across uh, different meditation apps, the reason I created Stoa initially was just because I want something like this, but it should be Stoic, not focused on uh, this sort of watered down version of Western Buddhism. Um, that, that might, I think is one reason, but a, a, another reason is that stoicism shares so much of what is people have found useful in cognitive behavioral therapy, but it has these additional, um, aspects that an provide answers for what a meaningful life is to provide an identity. You know, I am a stoic that many people are missing as the secularization increases uh, as many of these i think common narratives might be might be breaking down so those two aspects are some of the central ones that i would i would point to in terms of you know asking why stoicism uh, has has risen over the past uh, over the past few decades I mean, there's been more interest in mental health overall for everyone. I think a lot of guys feel like the options out there aren't always for them and are maybe too focused on emotions and sort of not focused enough on action. Do you think there's anything there? I don't know about the gender balance of your app or something like that, but whenever I've met somebody in person and they've said, I'm a stoic, it's always a guy and it's usually an engineer. Yeah, there, I think there's something, there's certainly something to that. Stoicism is, has more stereotypically masculine thought patterns, I suppose. It was founded entirely by men. Um, and I think that many Stoic groups uh, or apps are going to have a gender skew that varies anywhere from 60 percent to 90 percent men um there there are I, I would say that there are some women of course who do also don't find the typical uh say mental health advice mental health apps that useful and they also uh 
uh, might maybe they have more of a analytical style and the, the, they will also find stoicism useful. So, and I've noticed across different newsletters, the apps, the gender balance is going to be is, is different. So our gender balance on Stoa, the app is closer to equal, whereas most of our written uh, materials are for whatever reason. Uh, and in the podcast, for whatever reason, are much more skew, much more male. Uh, and some, some of that might be changing. There's some work by uh, Brittany Pollatt that focuses on uh, stoicism and especially around people in caretaking uh, roles, whether it's nursing, teaching, and so on. And that, I think, is going to make, as people doing those sorts of projects in, uh, increase, that, that's going to might shift the landscape a little bit, but there, there's certainly something, something to that. That sounds like a, a good use of, you know, stoicism for, for those occupations. Well, it, you know, it brings me to something that I think is a big question in mental health, not publicly, but maybe privately, which is to what degree is just talking about stuff actually useful? And to what degree is just expressing emotions actually useful? You know, there are some studies that that show that, like, if you never express your emotions, that's that's not good. In fact, there was one of stoicism, you know, sort of naive stoicism, as they called it, that showed that the people who were the least likely to talk about their feelings or they would, you know, they didn't do as well as other people. At the same time, it's it's also true that if you tell people just don't think about your feelings, they tend to feel happier. And there, there is correlational evidence that shows that the people who think about their emotions less and express it less are happier, you know, and you can sort of put that either way. But I think fundamentally, one thing we have to think about in terms of mental health and society at large is whether we want to continue to be a society that really emphasizes emotion or one that tries to sort of restrain it a bit more. And the reason I say that is because I genuinely want people to feel better. And it, it just, it seems to me that there's probably some kind of sweet spot where you feel your emotions and you maybe process them and you only express them if necessary or when it's appropriate. But I, I almost feel like in psychology, we've gone in the other direction to the point of being over affirmative. Um, so I don't know, maybe stoicism has, you know, something closer to the sweet spot on that issue as well. Right. I think some people hear stoicism and they'll interpret it as, oh, you should just have the stiff upper lip, uh, never complain, these sorts of things, which is not ultimately what stoicism is about. Indeed, it's not even about reducing negative emotions. Uh, fundamentally, it's about, you know, being a, being a good person um, to the best of your ability. Uh, that being said, of course, there are, I think that over the past, certainly over the past uh, decade, many people have gone great lengths to distinguish Stoicism with a capital S. You know, like this is the life philosophy versus being Stoic, where you might describe uh, someone who has the stiff upper lip. Um, I've gone to great lengths distinguishing these two, um, and there there is plausibly something of value in cultures that practice this lowercase stoicism and stoics uh now the capital s are going to be a little bit closer to that on average perhaps than many 
educated uh, people who might be more, or than many people who might uh, ingest more of these expressive modes of being. Um, but but really, I could see Stoicism being flexible about what the culture ends up being, whether we end up uh, favoring more uh, expression and then just ensuring that we uh, cultivate positive emotions, we that the expressions of emotions represent, you know, that Stoics think emotions are judgments, so they need to be true, they need to be grounded in reality in some sense. Um, as long as we if we can be expressive and if we have processes for uh ensuring that the judgments are good ones that could be uh just as good as perhaps more uh restrictive cultures um yeah yeah i i i did a podcast um it hasn't come out yet but with uh kevin mcaffrey who's a sociologist and he's written a bit about suicide uh and secularization and I was surprised when I talked to him because I was kind of approaching him with this idea of maybe we should, you know, have more of a stiff upper lip and not talk so much about these issues, especially if there's, you know, a chance that they could impact other people's, you know, maybe people would be more likely to, you know, commit suicide or something like that. He said, no, we should have people be as open and honest as possible, as often as possible. We just need it to be the case that when they do that, they actually have mental health care people who are better than the ones we have now. So, right, like, the it's okay to be fully expressive if you have an action to back that up. And part of the problem is if you have a, if you have a healthcare system or society where you tell everybody to be really expressive and then you don't actually have the resources uh, or the knowledge, the wisdom, to then take that negative expression and turn it positive, then, yeah, then you've just sort of made everybody more miserable, but you haven't provided them with a... A solution yeah that's a great point i think you know, so you have this meme around men should be more expressive and more emotional but my general sense is that men are punished both by women and other men for being over expressive in a way that women are not and that norm has not changed merely because people have spoken uh about you know expressing your emotions more and that being good and i think you know the question is do you want to uh, let people express uh, themselves and then handle that appropriately? Or are you going to, say, be a culture that puts the onus on the person to do as much uh, work as they can? And I could see either working out well, but uh, right now, you know, merely doing one or, you know, having people isolate without uh, asking for help when they truly need it. Or having them express themselves and not get the help, or or worse, is is certainly not ideal. Yeah, it, you know, and and maybe part of this as well is a a change. And some would say this is feminization. I think that's part of it. I also think part of it is just subjectivization. Like over time, things we care much more about subjectivity and people's feelings. And I'm sure feminization is part of that story. I don't even think it's the whole story, but I think it's part of that story. But you know, even even psychology a hundred years ago, right, was I think much closer to Stoicism. Um, Philip Reif, who was a, like a scholar, uh, and he wrote a lot on Freud. He wrote a book called Freud: Mind of the Moralist, and he described Freud as a Stoic moralist. He he said that you know, I mean, Freud has a lot of wacky stuff, but he said at the end of the day, Freud is basically telling people to in private deal with their emotions. 
and that the goal is not happiness, right? Freud did not think the goal was was happiness, and he was actually quite, in some sense, a, a, tra- um, a bit like Joseph Conrad. He's a bit of a tragic thinker in the sense of he doesn't really believe in human perfectibility. He thinks humans are sort of at their best when they're wrestling with their issues, dealing with their challenges, almost more than overcoming them. And at that time, he and other people did not think the goal of therapy or of mental health was to be happy. They thought the goal was to, you know, alleviate unnecessary suffering, sort of, you know, get people unblocked in some sense from issues. And, and then over time, as it becomes sort of more public, you have these sort of public mental health things. Um, and that mixes with spirituality, the self-help movement. And, and suddenly it's, it's a panacea. Suddenly it's like everybody needs to be expressive and positive. Um, and so, yeah, maybe part of it too is sort of a cultural change that now we're having a bit of a backlash to. I, I still think it's incredible that Jordan Peterson, right, is like the most probably popular psychologist of all time, right? And almost most of what he does is just tell people to take responsibility and like clean their room. And yet that message is somehow in this time period, like the most popular message. It's, it's, it's crazy to, if you told somebody that a hundred years ago, they'd think, you know, you're nuts. Thomas Saz's book on the history of psychoanalysis um, and, and therapy essentially uh, has a similar story where he says the therapists are the inheritors of Greek philosophers and priests. They're, they play a, a mixed role um, in the sense that uh, like the Stoics, Epicureans, and so on, they think about, you know, how can you cure your thinking how can you improve your thinking um in addition to i think inheriting some of these if not religious at least symbolic and ceremonial roles that might have been taken by a shaman or a priest in many different cultures and um it's certainly true that sometimes what people describe as medicine is a way to cover up what really is a kind of moral entrepreneurship uh, and and these deeper philosophical uh, claims. So I, I think people like Peterson get a lot of play because he challenges what at least some people perceive to be those philosophical claims around lacking responsibility. Uh, perhaps you know there's always this political undercurrent, even if it's not. Uh, explicit in Peterson um, that speaks to people. Um, and then, of course, he has the religious element uh, as well. It, and he, like the, the Stoics and the other Greek schools we talked about at the beginning, they're trying to integrate all of these things together, right? So they're trying to have your mental state is related to your physical state, is related to your political state, is related to your... Fi- like, you know, it's, it's this more uh, nested view of a good life of a person that I think a lot of people are missing right now. And this connects a little bit, I guess, to the sort of neoliberalism kind of individualism thesis. But uh, there's a term, you know, in psychology, psychosocial integration, which is the idea that the relationship between the individual and their family and their community and society at large is like a healthy one, right? Because in the same way, you know, Friends can have a healthy or unhealthy relationship or family members. You can have an unhealthy or healthy relationship to your society, right? So if 
you feel a part of your society, you feel the society respects you, like that's a healthy relationship. Whereas if you feel oppressed or discriminated against, or you just don't even feel involved, right? That's not a healthy relationship. And there's, um, you know, there's this, there's one psychologist who, who wrote a book called the, the Globalization of Addiction. And he basically argues this is sort of the unspoken issue of our time is just people do not feel integrated. They don't feel like their personal, physical, community, family, social, political, like, they don't feel like every layer is okay in a way that years ago they just would have taken for granted. Yeah, yeah. I go, I, I think that this is somewhat speculative, but it's, it's always interesting to hear that from people whose role just sort of is plausibly the result of unbundling a community where, you know, you have a third party now who you know, parents can refer their children to, who schools can, uh, you know, refer them to. And this third party is usually not as well integrated in the community as a priest or philosopher might have been in the past. So that's, that's interesting. Um, but I also do go back, uh, go back and forth on this question around like how much more do people take these challenges of meaning seriously today than they did in the past you know in the, in the past people had dark nights of the soul status anxiety um and i think that if you think about those people who uh were able to you know live in their communities were they that happy or were they on some lower rung of the hierarchy of needs or that this sort of thing just didn't consider you know concern themselves at all uh, i'm not so sure that's a that's always a fascinating question and it's a it's a fascinating question across so many domains right like how different were people in the past to today and you know you have the historicist schools and i, I don't know presentist is that the term schools on on these kinds of questions it's it's really interesting, especially for politics too. But yeah, I think on on happiness and morality and all these things, it's a huge question. I I tend to take the view that um, people will almost like people will find reasons to be unhappy. Basically, you know, the the standard of living that we have today is so much higher than it was even a hundred years ago. And my guess is that probably in every time, people can find reasons to be unhappy. Um, and at the same time, I think there may be something unique about today's situation where it seems like some people are living the best lives ever. And a lot of people seem to have these lives where they're totally dis you know, disconnected from everything. And that, that actually brings me to my last question I wanted to ask you, which is, okay, so we sort of, we acknowledge that virtue is important for people in order to, you know, feel fulfilled be mentally healthy, less about happiness necessarily than just having a purpose, having a vision. Um, there's, there's a lot of, you know, speculation about AI and a sort of post-industrial society where there's less work for people to do. Things get automated away. And what are people going to do with their time? Right. The, this is obviously speculative, but we can already sort of see with ChatGPT and these things, like there are some jobs that are being created, but a lot of work is, you know, a lot of factory work has already been automated away. And soon you'll have more of this sort of technical, I don't know, white collar work too. And people sort of sometimes wonder, okay, well, what, what is the world going to look like after that? And I think whether you're a 
utilitarian or more of a virtue ethicist really, I think, affects how you view that question because uh, a lot of my more utilitarian friends, they think, oh, everyone will just be happy. Like everyone will do, they'll be taking psychedelics. They'll be, you know, having fun, playing video games. And I sort of think like those will be the zombie people. And there'll be a lot of other people who are trying to be a hero and they don't know how. And I just want to, you know, ask you, I mean, what do you think? Do you think even in a world in which most things or most problems were solved, you know, there was little to fight about, would people be unhappy because they, they still deeply desire to be virtuous? And, you know, how would they even show that? Yeah. So I think that maybe this ties in with the uh, previous question. I think that it's true that many of us have mutually incompatible desires. And that means that in a number of situations where we might be satisfied uh, in one desire, we're going to be, of course, frustrated in the other. And this might be another case of this where, yes, so there will be, if we enter some sort of uh, abundant society of leisure, there will be a class of people who... Um, are able to have some, you know, maybe completely euphoric, blissed out experiences and be happy with that, whether or not that is good for them. Um, and then there'll be another set of people who know how to use that leisure well. But knowing how to use leisure well is not a easy problem uh, at all. So there certainly will be challenges around around that. Does it mean people will be happy well they have the opportunity of happiness you know just bring it back to stoicism whatever circumstance you are in you can be uh happy does that mean uh it's easy to achieve no it's probably one of the you know hardest uh things in life to achieve to be you know build up that character virtuous of build up that character of virtue is always a uh always a matter of constant evolution so that's maybe not that precise of an answer to the question, but are people going to be unhappy? No, they'll have the opportunity for happiness just as they do in uh, every other age. I mean, I think if you look at the current upper class, right, who has the ability to, you know, most of them could just retire if they wanted to and live at a life of luxury. And yet they seek out the most difficult challenges that they can. They work more than anybody else. And that's obviously very different than in the past, where in the past, the poorest people be working the most and the rich people be working the least. And now it's like reversed. And it just, uh, I know I, I, I'm, I'm not a technology guy. I don't really know what the timeline is going to be like. A lot of my AI friends seem to think things are going to change very rapidly, very quickly in the, in the near future. And I can, I can almost imagine a world in which people are just, they're, they're still thirsty for virtue. And I don't know, perhaps they, we come up with sort of other ways of establishing that. I don't know, new kinds of games, um, immersive reality things, um, maybe new status competitions, I guess is what I imagine. But I, I definitely, I'm, def I'm not convinced that uh, people will be happy. Uh, even I think just because I think no matter how contented they are, they're still going to be missing that feeling of wanting to, do better wanting to be the hero. Uh, although, I mean, to be fair, I guess it's different for different people, right? Yeah, it's different for different people. I mean, if I imagine that world, that world sounds 
amazing. I can read as much as I want. I can, you know, have interesting conversations with people. I don't need to, you know, bother myself with all these, you know, mundane physical tasks, uh, boring logistics. That sounds fantastic. But what if the intellectual work was also automated? So what if no matter how much you read, you would never be as smart as like the Siri on your phone and people, it, 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 it almost became inconsequential how much you knew because people wouldn't ask you about it. They would ask with Siri, right? What about that kind of automation? Yeah, I think that doesn't bother me as much. Um, I mean, to some extent, we're already in that world. Um, so that, that may not bother me so much. But I think perhaps you can, other people, their ways of learning or challenging themselves are, might be less oriented around uh certain individual activity of learning but are going to be more around you know getting status reputation dominating others uh or not and is that are those people going to be happy well are they happy maybe they'll be about as happy as they are now uh i'm not sure all right uh well caleb if if people want to find you uh or the stoa app um where should they go um, yeah, you can find me. Uh, I have a Substack, Caleb M. Ontiveros. Uh, you can, should be able to find that through Google. If you want to try the Stoa app, learn more about Stoicism. We have hundreds of hours of lessons and meditations there. Just search Stoa, S-T-O-A, in the Play Store or App Store. Awesome. All right. Well, Caleb, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Cool. Thanks so much.